0: Osiris.
1: This podcast is In The Loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects
2: people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hi, this is Dave Davies of The Kinks, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology.
1: Daybreak in Buena Vista Park here in the city by the bay Friday morning October 6, 1967 The National Weather Service archive shows the high that day was 87 degrees Fahrenheit Scorching hot by San Francisco standards This hilly little park anchors the east end of the Haight-Ashbury district Buena Vista means good view in Spanish and the view is really nice up top. So, let's take the stairs. All right, looking west now, out over the Hate ashbury district. It's not very big. <laughs> it ends about eight blocks or so from where it bumps up against Golden Gate Park. So the day was unseasonably hot, but up top here in the early dawn hours... It was chilly and damp. (laughs) That's San Francisco for you. On this fall morning, a ritual was underway. A ceremony was conducted. Words were spoken over a casket. When the incantation was complete, many hands lifted the casket skyward and carried it overhead, slowly, back down the hill. About eighty or so people attended the service. They meandered through the hate carrying the dearly departed on one final trip through his old neighborhood. People joined the procession, and the crowd grew to several hundred. A destination, the Panhandle, a long skinny spur sticking off the east end of Golden Gate Park.
3: What we're thinking about is a peaceful planet. We're not thinking about anything else. We're not thinking about any kind of power. We're not thinking about any of those kind of struggles. We're not thinking about revolution or war or any of that. That's not what we want. Nobody wants to get hurt. Nobody wants to hurt anybody we would all like to be able to live an uncluttered life a simple life a good life you know and like think about moving the whole human race ahead a step or a few steps
0: Carried a coffin down Haight Street, and people threw beads and trinkets into the coffin, and then it was taken down to the panhandle, which is just right outside of Haight, and uh, burned as a pyre is burned. On the day of death of Hippie, we gave everything away.
1: Hippie, the devoted son of mass media, was picked up and carried along, as he had been so many times before, by the diggers. The pyre was built, the torch was lit, and Hippy was consumed by the flames. Hippy went up in smoke in a not-so-solemn ceremony conducted by the San Francisco diggers. <laughs> yep, diggers. No, not you diggers. A different set of diggers. So, let's meet them. This is from the archive at diggers.org.
0: Shrouded in the mystique of anonymity, the diggers took their name from the original English diggers, 1649 to 1650, who had promulgated a vision of society free from private property and all forms of buying and selling. The San Francisco diggers evolved out of two radical traditions that thrived in the San Francisco Bay Area in the mid-1960s, the bohemian underground art theater scene and the new left civil rights peace movement.
1: The Diggers had a special love for street theater. It was one part political protest, one part improvisational theater. Improvised, uh, but just the same, very intentional, carefully planned and executed. Throw in plenty of satire, a big dash of absurdity, and stir vigorously. Uh, That's street theater, San Francisco Diggers style. They had some great bits. They called themselves life actors, and their best stuff was pointed and uh, plenty shrewd. And being devoted anarchists, sometimes they would just fuck shit up for no good reason. Let's hear from one of our favorite writers, Jay Stevens. Uh, remember Jay from Episode 9. This is from his great book, Storming Heaven, LSD, and the American Dream.
4: They discovered the mirror game. In one of their scrounges, the diggers came across the bin of broken mirrors. The next time the gray line buses arrived... They ran alongside, holding up the mirrors to the windows so the tourists could look at themselves. Then they thought up the walk-ins, which involved hundreds of people walking back and forth across the street in rhythmic geometric patterns, snarling traffic for miles, and generally ending with the arrival of van loads of cops.
1: And yet, for all of their crazy antics and pointed irreverence, Sometimes it seemed like the diggers were the only ones who truly gave a shit. Uh, This kind of paradox, this sort of weird cultural irony, is the very stuff that San Francisco is made of. It was the friggin' anarchists of all people uh, who were willing to dig in, organize, and do some actual work. Pull off events and happenings, feed people, and keep the neighborhood safe. But there were, at most, only a couple dozen diggers. By midsummer of 1967, tens of thousands of homeless young people were squatting in the hate, crowding into crash pads, or sleeping rough in the park. More arrived every day. Jay Stevens, once again.
4: They were not beautiful. They had not been voted homecoming king or queen back in Oshkosh or Biloxi or wherever they came from. These kids were the rejects. They'd come here because they felt like losers in their hometowns, and that was not what the Council for the Summer of Love had expected. And along with the lost sheep came the usual compliment of wolves, the hustlers and petty criminals. For the first time, crimes other than shoplifting became a problem.
1: The diggers put out mimeographed newsletters. Uh, think of these as an early form of blogging. Like the Digger Street Theater, these Digger newsletters to the hate could be caustic, uh, brutally satirical. And they didn't just skewer the squares and burn the establishment. The Diggers were willing to question anybody or anything. Here's a swipe at the acid guru himself, Timothy Leary. The title, Uncle Tim's Children. A content warning, this is pretty rough. Sometimes the truth is like that. (laughs)
0: The Politics and Ethics of Ecstasy Rape is as common as bullshit on Hate Street The love generation never sleeps Kids are starving on the street There are people, our people Dying hideous long deaths among us Hate Street is ugly shit death And they suggest more elegant attire? You know a lot of grass. Oh,
2: Lord, I popped a lot of pills.
3: But I've never touched nothing that my spirit could kill.
1: Harsh stuff. And keep in mind, this Digger newsletter was published in April, months before the migration to the hate peaked. So things will actually get a lot worse. Not trying to be a downer here. We will have good things to say about San Francisco's Summer of Love and its aftermath. There was good music and a positive cultural legacy that spread throughout America and is still with us. Here's the thing, though. We hit the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love not too long ago, and we heard a lot of bullshit and happy talk about it. So we want to balance that out a little. It wasn't all love beads and wear some flowers in your hair. The real legacy of the Summer of Love is... Well, it's complicated. We're featuring the diggers' perspective here because for all their goofing and satire, they were, at their core, a clear-eyed practical bunch. And from their accounts, we can see that shit got real in the hate that summer. Very real. And that legacy... Is still with us. So, why did Hippie have to die? Why did the diggers want to put Hippie down for good? Can't we all just smile on our brother, everybody get together? Try to love one another. What it really was, of course, was a noble, but futile, attempt to take back the narrative about youth counterculture. The Diggers pointed out, correctly, that Hippie was the devoted son of mass media. As we said back in episode 4. The big boys with the big bucks were slow to catch on, but by the mid sixties corporate America was fully aware of rock and roll and youth culture, and they had dollar signs in their eyes. It was the perfect corporate hustle. They could play both ends off the middle. Newscasters could finger wag and tut tut about those no good dirty hippies and what is the world coming to? Then got to commercial, and you see messages from Coca-Cola and General Motors that deliberately co-opted the language and style of youth counterculture and let those cash registers ring. And that was the problem the diggers had with Hippie. In their estimation, Hippie was already dead, had been dead for a while. Ah, like the mad scientists they are, corporate America had dug up and reanimated Hippie. They put this corporate zombie version of hippie to work in the service of the almighty dollar. The diggers figured nothing good was going to come from that, and they were right. Down at street level in the hate, it wasn't long before they felt the strain, the sheer weight of numbers. Ugly cracks began to show. The good vibes and the free concerts uh, only went so far to paper over those cracks. All through 1967, songs like the Youngblood's lovely version of Get Together and Scott McKenzie's dreadful cover of San Francisco sent out a siren call to young people across America. Come to San Francisco. And they did. By the time we get to October, it was completely overwhelming. The Digger Stew in the park was only feeding a few hundred of the many thousands of kids occupying the district. Lined with beggars, dope dealers, and hollow eyed attics, Hate Street looked less like a happy hippie carnival and more and more like the black hole of Calcutta. There was a nasty outbreak of syphilis, and the Hate Ashbury Free Clinic reported a spike in tuberculosis cases. Residents and merchants saw an alarming jump in the rat population. So the ever practical diggers concluded. Hippie had to die and everyone needed to move on. Once Hippie was dead and gone, maybe these kids would get the fuck out of San Francisco and go back to Oshkosh and Bloxy.
2: When the truth is found to be...
4: This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. you and you've got The hottest man in the land! DIY and How Studios presents... The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Well, no, a Music. I have a dream. Culture. Technology and rock and roll. the show.
1: Hello, our diggers, and welcome to episode sweet 16 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Christian Swain here, and I am the Rock and Roll Archaeologist posted up behind the mic in San Francisco. So what happens when the underground joins the mainstream? What happens when lots of diverse people and cultural strains come together in one little spot? And when and how does it all become too much and just fall apart? We're going to explore these issues and more Uh, But first, let's do a little quick bit of housekeeping. Rockandrollarchaeology.com, it's there for you, and we recently spruced it up and improved it. Please stop by. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, we've got it. Come and get it. There is a support the project link right up top, if you're feeling so inclined. Finally, and this is a big one, if you enjoy our humble podcast endeavor, won't you kindly tell a friend about rock and roll archaeology? Thank you okay business handled we're good Uh, let's get to it right now this is episode 16 east of eden We'll come back to the hate. But right here, we're going to jump ahead in time, just about a year or so, to the summer of 1968. We're still in San Francisco, but we've moved a couple of miles away to the site of the Fillmore West Auditorium. This show is about music first of all, and for the next 3 years, this spot at the corner of Market and South Van Ness is the musical nexus. It is ground zero. These days, it's a car dealership. But back then, it was the Fillmore West, and the guy who ran it was Bill Graham. And Bill Graham loomed over the scene. Like one of those giant balloons in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, wrote the San Francisco music scribe Joel Selvin. Grateful Dead guitarist Bob Weir called him the most important non-musician in the history of music.
0: I book what I think should be heard, and uh, what I hope the public will also like you can't book yeah, something I can. One thing I that you like that, that you know, that you know the public will not eat right? so, you right? so you have to be concerned with draw and that's yeah, the hang-up in yeah, booking know, talent I mean. you, you cannot kill, just yeah, yeah. look at an act and say this is good and i'll, I'll book it. it
1: bill graham presents uh bill was always presenting here at the fillmore west was where he put it all together where Bill Graham perfected the art and science and business of the modern rock concert.
0: It's a very, very strange feeling this evening, but we're going to join you in having a good time. We'd like to start the music with a man who's become a a personal friend over the years of mine. A lot of the people who work here and on the coast who opened the place with us some three and a quarter years ago. One of the nice people in this business, Mr. Albert King.
1: Bill Graham presents. Bill presented in a lot of different ways. He left a complicated legacy. A humanitarian who raised millions for causes like education and human rights. And a cast iron son of a bitch when it suited him. Profane, fast-talking, a born hustler, and a sucker for a hard luck story. Bill Graham inspired fierce loyalty in some, smoldering hatred in others. Uh, We're in the first group. Despite all those stories about him acting like an overbearing tool, we love Bill. And here's why. Bill Graham was a fan. He loved music, showbiz, theater, and movies. Loved performance and spectacle. He was in it to make a buck, and he made plenty. But he combined that businessman's drive with the romance and passion you can only find in a true fan. Bill Graham, the concert impresario, was forged in the fires of the Holocaust. Bill was born Wolf Grzanka in Berlin on January 8, 1931. The youngest of six children, born to Frida and Jacob Grzanka, the one boy in a house with five sisters jacob grishanka died just two days after the birth of his son he had been injured at work some weeks earlier and a complication from that injury a blood infection took his life frida soldiered on raising six children on her own while she nervously watched the nazi party seize and consolidate power in germany by the mid-30s the hitler regime was firmly entrenched and the systematic oppression of german jews began As night descended on Germany, Frida Gershanka came to a desperate conclusion. The only way to save her children was to get them out of there. The eldest daughter, Rita, was shipped off to China. Evelyn, the second oldest girl, fled to Hungary with her young husband. Wolf, just eight years old, and the youngest daughter, 12-year-old Tola, would be smuggled across the frontier to a Red Cross camp at Chalmont, France, that was taking in Jewish children. Just a few weeks after she received word from the Red Cross that her two youngest children had arrived safely, Frieda Grzionka was grabbed up by the Nazis and shipped off to Auschwitz. In later years, Bill Graham would say his earliest clear memories were from the refugee camp at Chaumont. He had no real memories of his mother. The relative safety didn't last long. The Chaumont children were forced to flee, leaving with the clothes on their back just hours ahead of the Nazis. They would somehow make their way on foot across France and over the frontier into Spain. Most of them died. Tola perished from pneumonia on that leg of the trip. In the end, 11 of the 64 children who fled the Nazis from Chaumont made it to New York City arriving at last in September of 1941. The 11 surviving kids were lodged in a makeshift orphanage and army barracks. Once a week or so, a set of prospective parents would stop by and look them over. Bill was picked last. Rejection burned bright and hot in an 11-year-old boy who had already seen things nobody should ever have to see. It marked him. It seems clear to us that throughout his life, fear of failure drove Bill Graham just as much or more as the desire to succeed. He certainly hints at that in his autobiography. Something drove him. That's for certain. Graham was patrolling the Fillmore picket line, counting heads, clipboard in hand, always a clipboard when a kid with a long matted blonde hair piped up, greedy fucking pig. Graham spun on his heels like he was ready for it. Who said that? Who the fuck said that? With some weird street radar, the promoter instantly identified where the verbal assault had come from and was in the kid's face. Do you know how much it costs to put on a show like this? Do you have any idea how many people have to be paid? The musicians, the roadies, the truck drivers, the sound people, the light shows? You don't have a fucking clue. The kid wilted under the harangue. Graham knew how to use his voice like a New York jackhammer. And it was particularly effective against soft California years. That's from a great book about San Francisco, Season of the Witch, by David Talbot. Being Monterey Pop kneeled it down for him. Bill had little to do with organizing Monterey, but he managed several of the acts, so he was there and he learned. Bill Graham had been promoting concerts for a while and was already quite good at it. The original Fillmore had been open for a year and a half or so, and it was hopping every night. Now, he saw it could be more. Rock concerts could be an immersive experience something that pulled in many thousands of people and kept them there for hours. You had to make it bigger, though, and make it grand. More showbiz, more spectacle. Bring in theatrical elements, bigger sound, better lighting. The 1,100-seat Fillmore was just a little too cozy for that kind of a show. ¶¶ About a mile away was a joint called the carousel ballroom a big oddly shaped building at the weird intersection of market and south Van Ness. it was more than double the capacity of the original fillmore for a time the carousel was managed by a musician's cooperative set up by a cat named chet helms along with members of big brother the grateful dead jefferson airplane and quicksilver messenger service it didn't even last a year the co-op soon floundered in a morass of hippie business ethics and utter chaos, wrote Joel Selvin in Summer of Love. Summer of 1968, Bill Graham took over the lease on the carousel. Bill upgraded the joint and got better talent, added late shows and matinees. He tightened everything up, held people accountable. Bill ruffled some hippie feathers. The diggers considered him the worst kind of capitalist vulture in. Hated him with the heat of a thousand suns. Artists sometimes grumbled about pay. Bill could be a tough negotiator. But they knew getting paid wasn't going to be a problem. Bill was good for it. Good for all of it. One could argue that the San Francisco music scene needed a jolt of reality, a dose of professionalism right about then. Bill Graham provided that, along with a lot of showbiz panache. He didn't just hire the good musical talent. He brought in comics, theater troops, acrobats, and jugglers and dancers. He dressed up the staff in costumes, a psychedelic light show every night. He playfully mixed metaphors and threw genres in the blender and hit the button. Bill loved to come up with wildly incongruous bills that somehow managed to make sense. He put the Grateful Dead together with Otis Redding, Miles Davis with Chuck Berry, and Credence with Sly and the Family Stone then throw in a stand-up comic or a modern dance company. Brilliant. And everything was top shelf. The sound, the lighting, the front of house, the hospitality backstage. Here, a couple years in, nearing the beginning of 25 years at the top of the concert business, this was Bill Graham's sublime moment. He was creating something new with live entertainment, workshopping it in public, And it was fabulous. He renamed the Carousel, called it the Fillmore West. The first show was July 4th, 1968. Not long after that, Bill Graham took over an even bigger ballroom, 6,000 capacity, the legendary Winterland.
3: Waiting around the train station Waiting for that train Take me, take me away from this lonesome town.
1: the Greyhound Pack. Strung out and defeated, broke and broken-hearted, Janice Joplin returned home to Port Arthur, Texas in August of 1965. Back in those days, they called it Methadrine, a drug company trade name. Nowadays, it's known by its full chemical name, methamphetamine. Crank, ice, meth, whatever. It's the same crap. A powerful stimulant that can be dissolved in hot water and injected intravenously. It makes you feel godlike and energized, hyper-aware, and like some kind of sexual monster. And then you want some more. And some more. You don't eat, you don't sleep, and the itchy paranoia creeps in. Your world becomes very small and squalid, and dope is at the center of it. The injection site becomes infected and because you don't eat or sleep your body's too weak to fight off the infection so you find another spot Janice slept most of the way home greasy-haired and hollow-eyed soaking wet she weighed 90 pounds a long-sleeved blue work shirt hid the tracks on her arms she stepped off the bus squinting in the hard sunlight suffocating in the sticky Texas heat dum,
2: dum, 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 dum.
1: She'd been gone from Port Arthur a couple of years, tried her hand as a folk singer in L.A., San Francisco, then out to New York City and back to San Francisco. She ended up in a windowless ghetto apartment near the Hate, dope-sick and miserable. That's when her last few remaining friends scraped up the fare and put her on a bus back to Texas. "'I'll go back to school,' she told her parents. "'Study to be a teacher.' She enrolled at the community college. For something like eight months, she didn't sing a note in public. Janice had a hole in her soul. That's clear to us from our research. And it's clear enough to us when we listen to her. The last time we heard a singer pour that much desire and hurt, that much need into a song, was back in episode six when we discussed Aretha Franklin. Janice came pretty close to matching Aretha's range and power too. Hole in her soul, maybe. But like Aretha, the gods had shot a thunderbolt straight to her voice box. Janice was a natural.
3: A little
2: bit harder, so I can love, love, love me. I tell myself, well, I'm going to try. Yeah. Just a little bit harder, so I won't lose, lose, lose
1: me. Little girl blue, misunderstood by her family, wounded deep inside by that special personal cruelty that teenagers will inflict on the kid who is different. Dreamers and loners had a tough growing up in the 50s in a town like Port Arthur, Texas. Dudes and dope and drink would temporarily cover that hole, but only singing truly filled it. Once Janice started singing again, it wasn't going to be long. By early summer of 66, she was back in San Francisco. Chet Helms fancied himself a promoter and band manager. In 1966, he ran the Avalon Ballroom, the Fillmore's main competition, as part of his company, Family Dog Productions. Chet was sweet and easygoing, a hippie through and through, and his company reflected his personality. Things didn't jump off on time. People didn't get paid. The good vibes and hippie idealism only go so far. At some point, you gotta handle business. Chet mentored Bill Graham at first, but soon the fast talking workaholic student would far exceed the laid back master. By 1970, Chet was out of the concert business completely. But in 66, Chet Helm was riding high, and he knew Janice from the old days in Texas. He reached out to her. He was managing a band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and the guys in Big Brother were interested in a chick singer. That formula sure had worked out for Jefferson Airplane, the first band to make it out of the San Francisco scene and onto a major record label. Janice was deeply unhappy in Texas, but she was skittish about going back, afraid she would slip back into addiction, a fear that turned out to be very well-founded. Chet assured her that speed was out, acid was in, and the scene was beautiful. Janice decided to give San Francisco... Another go. San Francisco rockers took a pretty dim view of the L.A. scene. It was a little too slick, a little too commercial. There was more than a little reverse snobbery going on. Big Brother and the holding company had that attitude. And while we dig that gritty, authentic approach, truth be told, they weren't very good musicians. They could have used a little polish. One of our favorite curmudgeons, the rock writer Robert Christgau, described their sound as bizarre lumpin' hippie acid rock. In fairness, Big Brother never got a chance to work with a good producer and technical team. That makes a big difference, especially for a new act. The first album was a hastily recorded cut and paste job, and it sounded like it, uneven. We dig the live energy Big Brother had, though. Uh, They definitely killed it at Monterey. There's a great live recording from 1968, Janice and Big Brother at Winterland, the whole concert. It was remastered and released in 2015. It's some raw, emotional, and utterly ass-kicking rock and roll. We dig Big Brother's version of George Gershwin's Summertime. It starts with an instrumental workout that uses the harmonic minor scale, and it's not something you hear a lot in rock music. Then, of course, Janice just sings the hell out of it. So, uh, for those first couple of years, for this lonely, misunderstood young woman from a mean little town, chops and professionalism were not the important thing.
3: Down. On-
2: When Janice joined Big Brother, she joined a family, not just a band. Indeed, the band's communal style was one of the reasons she decided to stay in San Francisco. In the Bay Area's acid rock explosion, bands frequently resembled large tribes that included close friends and lovers.
1: That's Alice Eccles from her terrific 1999 book, Scars of Sweet Paradise, The Life and Times of Janice Joplin. We're using Alice's book as the primary source for our discussion of Janice. We also recommend checking out Janice and Big Brother's scorching, life-changing performance preserved forever in D.A. Pennebaker's movie, Monterey Pop. Finally, we really like Amy Berg's 2015 documentary, Janice, Little Girl Blue. Links are in the show notes. Okay, back to the story. So, Big Brother was a raggedy, sloppy bunch of fun-loving, drug-taking hippies. And they sounded like that, too. But they also were a family. A big, weird, dysfunctional, but loving just the same family. Janice soon fell back into drug abuse. She wasn't much of a tripper. Janice preferred alcohol to psychedelics, with some meth every now and then so she could keep drinking. She started throwing in some heroin to manage the come down. But there in the early days of San Francisco, she had folks. A network of friends who looked out for her and kept her from going completely off the rails. Thanks to her big brother extended family, Janice muddled through and more or less managed as a high functioning addict. Then Monterey happened, and the whole world wanted to know about Janis Joplin. The star maker machinery started cranking up. The first big move happened before the festival was even over. Big Brother's easygoing hippie manager, Chet Helms, was out. And a fast-talking hard charger named Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager, was in. Right away, the guys in the band suspected Albert Grossman was mostly interested in managing Janice. And they were right. As 67 turned to 68 and Big Brother started touring nationally, Janice was looking around. One big reason, Janice worshipped Otis Redding. Even before Monterey Pop, she was a big fan. And after Monterey, well, that was it. She wanted to be Otis Redding. At Monterey, Otis was backed up by the Marquise and the Memphis Horns, a killer ensemble led by Booker T. Jones as the musical director. We talked about these guys back in episode 13. Booker T., Steve Cropper on guitar, Donald Duck Dunn on bass, and Al Jackson Jr. on drums. The Memphis Horns were led by Wayne Jackson on trumpet and Andrew Love on tenor sax. We had to take a second and name-check these guys again. They deserve it. They were a powerhouse, hands down, one of the best musical acts of the 1960s. They worked on a whole different level than Big Brother. Strong musicianship, lots of training and rehearsal. They played snappy, tight and powerful, disciplined, professional. Janice couldn't help but notice the way the band responded to Otis became an extension of him. As frontman, he would summon the power, and the band provided it on command. She loved that and wanted some for herself. Whatever personal issues she had, and she had some, Janice was fiercely ambitious. She wanted to make it as a big-time professional singer, and she was willing to do whatever it took to get there. By the end of 1968, Big Brother was out. 1968 was when Janice basically said goodbye to the Bay Area and her big brother family and started living like a nomadic rock star. When she wasn't on the road, she split her time between hotel rooms in L.A. and New York. The drinking and the drugging got worse from there. A lot worse. In the abstract, the rock and roll life sounds appealing and romantic, but the reality is that once the show is over and the house lights go up, The road is mostly just a hard, lonely grind. First-class travel in nice hotel rooms make it easier. But the pressure is unrelenting and at a level unimaginable to most people. After hours, too much booze and drugs, easy sex, shady characters, and hangers-on everywhere you turn. And it's a weird, isolated experience. Life in a bubble. Days, even weeks go by, where the only people you interact with are handlers and sycophants, people who want something from you. The touring life takes its toll even on people who are well-grounded and secure in themselves. Most bands out on the road deal with it by becoming a tight, self-contained unit, a surrogate family. They look out for each other. When Janice broke away from the Big Brother family at the end of 68, she lost that camaraderie that love and support. In her bio of Janice, Alice Eccles makes the case that while going solo might have been the right move professionally, on a personal level, it might have put Janice on the road to inevitable tragedy. In our last episode, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, we talked a little bit about 1968 in America. We called it a murderous, angry, chaotic year. It started right away, at the end of January, with the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Tet was actually a big defeat for the Viet Cong guerrillas in the South. After getting caught flat-footed, the American forces rallied and damn near wiped them out. But on the larger battlefield of American public opinion, it was a different story. Throughout February, the nightly news showed the American embassy in Saigon under attack. Vicious house-to-house fighting in way, U.S. Marines under siege at Sanh. Three-plus years of spin and happy talk about the war unraveled in a few weeks. It could no longer be denied or explained away. Vietnam was a bloody quagmire, and there was no clear path to victory. On February 27, 1968... At the conclusion of a one-hour special report on Vietnam, broadcast in primetime, CBS newscaster Walter Cronkite famously summed it up.
4: To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate, seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion.
1: Just one month later, on March 31st, President Lyndon Johnson announced he would not seek re-election. Less than a week after that, on April 4th, Martin Luther King was gunned down in Memphis. Dozens of American cities exploded in riot and insurrection. In the middle of that long, hot summer, the American Democratic Party held its national convention in Chicago. The party was bitterly divided over the Vietnam War, and the convention hall simply could not contain the anger. Across America, televisions flickered with gruesome images of young Americans being tear-gassed and savagely beaten by Chicago police. And public opinion, as expressed at the time in surveys, and later that year in the November election, was firmly on the side of the cops. The Republican candidate, Richard Nixon, running on a law-and-order platform, squeaked out an Electoral College win in a three-way contest defeating the hapless Democrat Hubert Humphrey and the viciously racist governor of Alabama, George Wallace, who ran as a third-party candidate. The Vietnam War would continue and escalate to whole new levels of savagery during the Nixon regime. It wasn't just America, we hasten to add. 1968 is remembered almost everywhere as a time of popular unrest. Mass demonstrations, social conflicts, political violence, and outright revolution— Things spilled out into the street in cities all around the world. Massive general strikes in France, nationwide student strikes in Mexico, Korea, and Japan, anti-colonial revolutionary movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, which spread like wildfire across Soviet-controlled Eastern Europe. This time also marks the beginning of a new chapter of what the Brits call the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So, fare thee well, Haight Ashbury. So long, Summer of Love. It was nice while it lasted. The San Francisco Summer of Love in 67 has become the International Winter of Discontent in 68.
3: I'm on the road again, I'm on the road again But I'm so tired of crying But I'm out on the road again I'm on the road again I ain't got no woman just to call my special
1: friend The bands, the airplane, the dead, big brother had all moved out of the hate well before the funeral and the diggers scattered not long afterwards The kids went home, too, for the most part. Left behind now, and much worse for wear and tear, the hate quickly became a blighted, impoverished district and would remain that way for years. But they took something with them, all those kids, when they went back to Oshkosh and Bloxy. At least some of these pilgrims from 1967 soaked up some ideas, along with all the LSD and good weed. Most of them just went back to school, got jobs, and raised kids like their parents did. But they lived a little closer to the ground. They were less bound by tradition, less interested in running the rat race. A small but important slice of them went back, or went elsewhere, and formed little intentional communities that had some of that digger ethic. They started music scenes, theater troupes, artist collectives. They formed communes, many of which are still around. They published underground zines, founded indie record labels. 1968 is when we see all these small but good regional music scenes start to pop up all over America, in big cities and especially in college towns. And yes, Hippie was co-opted by corporate America and used to sell things. But that wasn't all bad. When the underground joins the mainstream, it usually brings some good ideas with it. A hundred flowers bloomed. Multicultural course offerings and degree programs started up at universities across America. Organically grown food becomes a thing right here. American consumers would become more interested in energy efficiency and buying products that made less impact on the environment. Yoga studios started popping up in strip malls. It's also worth saying, the movement to legalize marijuana which has largely come to fruition in recent years, starts right here. And of course our thing, music and culture, popular books and films, hit songs, television shows, live theater, all of them become a lot more daring, more willing to cross boundaries and smash through taboos. What we especially like, after 1968, mainstream audiences will hear more and see more from women and from people of color.
2: All the world over so easy to see People everywhere just want to be free Listen, please, listen, that's the way it should be Peace in the valley, people got to be free
0: The cultural landscape is fashioned from a natural landscape by a cultural group culture is the agent. The natural area is the medium. The cultural landscape is the result.
1: That's a quote from an academic guy by the name of Carl Sauer. Professor Sauer spent his career at the University of California, Berkeley, and he is widely considered to be the founder of cultural geography. Prior to the 20th century, it was a generally accepted idea that geography, the terrain and climate and other attributes of the physical space, that geography sets the broad parameters for the human culture that inhabits that space. And that is still true as far as it goes, but Professor Sauer concluded, correctly in our view, that it's more than that, it's more like a feedback loop, the culture affects the landscape and the landscape affects culture. Like what we say all the time about rock and roll and the larger culture that the music inhabits. They affect each other. They are each other. It's not hard to imagine that living and working in the San Francisco Bay Area had something to do with Sauer developing this idea. Uh, This place is like a cultural geographer's special playground. So early on in the program today, we asked what happens when lots of diverse people and cultural strains come together in one little spot. Well, San Francisco is what happens. Stand on a hilltop anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area, like up top at Buena Vista Park back at the opening of this program. Go any place where the view is good. One can't help but see that the culture and the landscape are deeply entwined here. The diversity of the landscape is a function of the diversity of the people, and vice versa. Our point: it had to be San Francisco. The summer of love had to come here, and when it left here, the first stops were right across the bridges. The culture and the geography demanded it. Yeah, that's how we see it, anyway. <laughs>
3: you know variety of soul as possible and I thought if people could see
2: that and see all these different people having fun on stage then it wouldn't be so hard for people to have a good time either because if they look to the left or right and saw a woman or somebody with another race and they look at the same thing on stage they get glad and relaxed
1: So we're going to put away the soapbox and go back to the music now. We'll take a cue from the diggers and clear out of San Francisco and start heading east back the other way. Let's cross the Bay Bridge, one of nine bridges that span San Francisco Bay, and visit some East Bay communities, Oakland and Berkeley, and just north of those cities, El Cerrito and Richmond. We finally made it to a couple of our all-time favorite acts. And it just so happens they were both from the Bay Area and they both got their start in the late 60s. Let's meet Creedence Clearwater Revival and Sly and the Family Stone. It's kind of interesting to talk about these two together. Both acts had meteoric careers that only lasted a few years, and yet they both had big, lasting influence. Very different backgrounds, very different in sound and attitude, and yet they both started about the same time and just a few miles away from each other. We'll start with Sly Stone. He was born Sylvester Stewart in 1943, second of five children, the son of a preacher father and a choir director mother. The Stewarts were a musical family, and young Sly was especially precocious, the standout in a very talented clan. By age seven, he was proficient on piano, and by the time he finished high school, he was a multi-instrumental wizard. Sly Stone first made his mark professionally in the mid-60s as a DJ at the Oakland radio station KSOL, K-Soul. Sly would spin the James Brown and the Motown, but he was a big fan of British Invasion rock and roll, and he slipped plenty of that into the playlist, too. His energy behind the mic and his eclectic approach won him a large, dedicated audience. He produced tracks by local artists, including an early version of Jefferson Airplane, before Grace Slick joined the band. Sly was also an in-demand player who gigged often as a sideman, piano, bass, drums, guitar. He could do it all. In 1967, he joined forces with his younger brother and their cousin and some other cats from around the East Bay. They put together a loose and funky multicultural coalition of musicians based in Richmond. Sly and the Family Stone. Their first album, A Whole New Thing, came out during the Summer of Love. Sly had a couple of great things going on as a composer, arranger, and producer. Sly and the Family Stone songs jump out of the speakers. They've got that radio-friendly gloss. And the funk is just wicked, on par with James Brown. Sly was also a huge Beatles fan, and like the Beatles, he built songs that were crafty and sophisticated. Bridges and breaks, intros, outros, hook after hook, jam packed into a few minutes of playing time. Larry Graham was the Family Stone's bassist on all their best tracks, and that dude was, still is, amazing, revolutionary. Larry is widely credited for coming up with the popping and slapping the bass strings to get that funky snap out of the instrument. That technique has been a staple for rock bassists going on 50 years now, and Larry was the first to do it. A Whole New Thing had only modest success, but the second album, Dance to the Music, released in the spring of 68, was a smash. The title track was a top-ten hit, and 50 years later, it's still a guaranteed crowd-pleaser on the jukebox and for bar bands around the world. Things really jumped off in 1969 with the summertime release of Stand. It's one of the best albums from a year that saw a bunch of great releases. Here's one of our favorite cuts, and a quote from Alec DeBro's July 69 review in Rolling Stone magazine. A noisy young street gang with a very evident sense of moral purpose. Almost all their songs on Stand are openly idealistic, telling of things as they should be, dealing with vast social problems in abstract terms. Stand is not, however, simply a polemic. It's also extremely vital body music. It really can't be listened to at low volume. It's for anyone who can groove on a bunch of very raucous kids charging through a record telling you exactly what they think, whether you want to hear it or not. If you don't mind being pushed a little, then STAND will move you.
3: i yeah. yeah.
1: Summer of 1967, 22-year-old John Fogarty had a wife and a young family. He lived in a cheap little apartment in Albany, a little community shoved in between Berkeley and El Cerrito. John had been banging it out in a rock and roll band since his early teens, teamed up with a couple of buddies he knew from Portola Junior High in El Cerrito, drummer Stu Cook and bassist Doug Clifford. The Blue Velvets played Elvis and Bo Diddley, country song Standards. They did dances and weddings and backyard barbecues, and sometimes they would back up John's older brother, Tom Fogarty, at nightclubs. In 1964, Tom joined up with them. John saw a documentary about the jazz pianist Vince Guaraldi on PBS one day and dug it. He learned that Vince recorded for a little jazz label based in Berkeley, Fantasy Records. He wrote them, went down to their offices, and pestered them. Fantasy took a shot on the local kids and signed the Blue Velvets to a record deal. A truly horrible record deal, as it turned out. The new head of Fantasy Records, Saul Zentz, changed their name to the Gollywogs, a bit of silliness that was supposed to imitate the British invasion bands that were dominating American radio at the time. They cut some 45s that didn't go anywhere. Along the way, to avoid going to Vietnam, John signed up for a two-year hitch in the Army Reserves. On that afternoon, while the summer of love sputtered and crashed to a halt across the bay, John Fogarty decided he ought to take a look at the mail piled up on his
0: porch. After about three days of stepping over it, I finally looked down close and noticed it's got my name on it. Private John Fogarty. I say, holy mackerel! That's for me. I open the thing, and it looks kind of like your high school diploma. My honorable discharge from the Army. This is a big day. I read it again to make sure, and I run over to this little patch of lawn, and I actually do a cartwheel. I ran right back in the house and picked up my Rickenbacker. i have been working on these cords, and now I had such a rush of energy and good feeling like a weight had been lifted off. It was just, whew, and out came the first line, left a good job in the city. I went, yeah, that's kind of what just happened. The idea that I just felt so free, open, I started to get some words together.
1: That is John Fogerty Gang. He narrated the audiobook version of Fortunate Son, his 2015 memoir. We tend to be skeptical when it comes to the rock star autobiographies, but John's book is damn good, and like his music, it feels honest and authentic. That's one of our favorite stories right there how he came up with CCR's signature tune. Proud Mary is a timeless piece of Americana, a, a small masterpiece. It's as good a song as anything written by John's biggest musical hero, America's first professional songwriter, Stephen Foster. So, when we think about credence, the question that pops up is how do some school buddies from El Cerrito, California, from West Coast suburbia sound like they're from Natchez, Louisiana or something like from deep in the bayou country? Turns out, the answer to that question is Stephen Foster.
2: Oh Susanna, Old Kentucky Home, Jeannie with the light brown hair, and old folks at home have resonated through the generations. They are the essence of Americana, as fundamental and timeless, a part of the American identity as the Gettysburg Address and Huckleberry Finn, so ingrained into our collective consciousness that many are considered today to be folk songs, as if they were born with the earth, and not the creation of an actual songwriter.
1: The music is the amazing Chet Atkins playing a medley of Stephen Foster songs on solo guitar. The quote is from Lydia Hutchinson, published in Performing Songwriter magazine in January of 2015. If you went to elementary school in America, chances are you sang some of Stephen Foster's songs in class. I know, we sure did. And an interesting thing about Foster, he wrote all of these fond remembrances about the South, his old Kentucky home way down upon the Suwannee River. Uh, but he was a city boy from Pittsburgh. <laughs> he rarely set foot south of the Mason-Dixon line during his short life. He died alone in 1862 in a flea bag hotel in New York City. He was only 32 years of age and he had 37 cents in his pocket.
2: Well, you wake up in the morning
3: You hear the work bell ring And I march you to the table You see the same old thing On a the table, there's no fork up in the
2: pan. But you better not complain,
3: boy. You get in trouble with the man. Let the midnight special shine a light on.
1: John Fogarty had other influences that were firmly rooted in the music of the American South, notably Huddy Leadbetter, or Leadbelly, the Louisiana blues man who wrote Midnight Special. You might recall we discussed Leadbelly back in episode 10 of this podcast. But it was when Lucille Fogarty bought a 45 RPM recording of Stephen Foster's Oh Susanna, backed with Campdown Races, and played it for her five year old son. That's when young John realized there was such a thing as a professional songwriter, and that maybe he could be one too. He carried that insight with him through his teen years and on into adulthood.
4: While Bob Dylan and the band were turning to folk and country as anecdotes to psychedelia, Credence regarded rock and roll itself as the heartbeat of the nation, Americana you could
1: dance to. Fogarty's songs were so precise and direct that any half-decent bar band could play them. Yet they were enriched with compassion, moral clarity, and a growing sadness that made his protest songs about Vietnam class and the Nixon years some of the most powerful of their era. Oh, I
3: thought it was a nightmare! Lord, it
1: That's Dorian Linsky, writing in the Manchester Guardian in 2013. It took Creedence about six years to become an overnight success, but once their cover of Suzy Q hit in early 1968, CCR took off like a rocket. For the next three years, they put out hit after hit and traveled the world nonstop as a top-tier touring band. (laughs) ¶¶ The only other band that had such an incredibly steep trajectory was the Beatles. By the following summer, 1969, even if it wasn't official yet, the Beatles had broken up and Creedence stepped right in. After the decade turned over, CCR dominated the American sales charts and airwaves like nobody had since the Fab Four came across the ocean some five years earlier. The summer of 69 was the summer of Creedence, three hit albums and seven top ten singles that year, culminating in the fall release of Willie and the Poor Boys. Credence was a big concert attraction, second only to Jimi Hendrix, big enough to be offered the headline spot on Saturday night at this big festival in upstate New York. It was billed as three days of peace, love, and music, and it was going to be about twice the size of Monterey Pop. About 50,000 people were expected. CCR was touring relentlessly that summer, playing five nights a week and more. But they managed to slot in that gig early August in Woodstock, New York. We began this episode in the fall of 1967, standing on a San Francisco hillside looking west down over the Ashbury district, out towards the ocean. For a brief mythical moment, this place was Eden. Not really, but we like to think of it that way in hindsight. In the fourth chapter of the Book of Genesis, the rebellious child defies the stern, judgmental parent and slays his brother Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain responds when he's questioned about it, and a few verses later he is exiled to the lands which lie east of Eden. The diggers, the rebellious anarchistic diggers, (laughs) had decided they were no longer their brother's keeper, and they put Hippie in a coffin. They exiled themselves from Eden, and the kids who flocked to the hate that summer, soon they were gone too. They left San Francisco, the westernmost city on the American continent, and went to the lands east of Eden. Everybody. The summer of love was this moment of giddy, naive optimism. We can see that easily in hindsight. It fell apart quickly, and people have gently, and not so gently, made fun of hippies ever since. We have our own critique, you heard it today. It ended with a whimper, rather than a bang. It didn't transform the world, and many of the pompous declarations made at the time sound ridiculous some 50 years later. But if we're going to say that about the Summer of Love, and about the 60s and the counterculture, then it's important to say two other things. First, the damage wasn't all self-inflicted. Today, we know for certain what many anti-war and civil rights organizers suspected at the time. That the establishment was out to get them. It's now a confirmed matter of public record that the FBI and CIA engaged in covert and highly illegal operations aimed at disrupting these movements and discrediting their leaders. And to no small degree, these operations were effective. Second, 50 years gives us some perspective. If you want to put down the dirty fucking hippies, if you want to poke fun at the goofy naivety behind the summer of love, well, go right ahead. But you know what's far more ridiculous and has done way more harm? All the reactionary, mean-spirited, cultural, and political backlash we've been living through ever since. Fuck that. We'll take the dirty fucking hippies and their goopball idealism. Thank you very much. So, put it this way. While we may be skeptical, we refuse to be cynical about the Summer of Love. At long last, we're going to embrace it. Like a wayward old friend we haven't seen in a while. Myths are public dreams. Dreams are private myths, said the scholar and author Joseph Campbell. It was largely a myth, this Summer of Love thing. We don't even have to look very hard to see that. But like a vivid dream from last night that stays with you somehow as you move through your day, the Summer of Love dream persists. It's because the Summer of Love dream tells us something we like to hear, Uh, that we need to hear. It tells us we don't have to live like this. It tells us that people are essentially kind and cooperative. It tells us we can live in harmony with each other and with our planet. And what's more, it tells us that it's fun, that you can even dance to it. We are older and sadder now, but we are still dancing to it. We're still dreaming it, and we've got more to say about it. But that will have to happen on another day. For now, I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Nice of you to stop by. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time in Episode 17. Keep up the rockin'.
3: Glim, still water, when there is no pebble tossed Nor wind to blow, reach out your hand. If your cup be empty, if your cup is full, may it be. Hey
1: diggers, Christian Swain here, with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From The Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rocking right into the next
4: generation. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson from Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football